we've got you know, a few kids. I said 85 kids this week in, in VBS. Most of those are our kids. We, we've got amazing ratio now that we sent uh, the people out to, to, uh, uh, to plant in Alito, just adults to kids. It's wild. And, and I've had some conversations, I'll tell you this. I've had a few conversations over the years now that we've been doing this for five years together as a family about who my sons are going to marry or whose daughter is going to marry my sons. Meaning, my boys are eight and younger, nine, sorry, as of last week, nine and younger, and uh, we're already arranging their marriages, right? We're already like, hey, this and this, this is going to happen, right? Like not thinking about the next 20 years of what might happen in their life, we're saying this is going to happen, like, right? We saw, we saw fl- uh, uh, a glimmer of a relationship. They actually care about each other. They, they, they talk to each other, they have fun together. Oh, there it is. Like, let's make this happen. How much, what, what's the negotiation? What do we need to talk about this? Huh? Other dad, other mom, what, what, what do we need to do to make this arrangement happen in 20 years? Like that's, that's some of the conversations I've had. I'm not making a statement, uh, a moral statement. I'm not saying, I'm just saying I've had some of those conversations. I've had some of those conversations. It's funny. I like it. But when you think about it, uh, there's something about prearranged marriages that feels very weird to us, but is very normal to the Bible. It's very different. And so we're coming at something this morning, thinking about marriage. And I know I'm like setting up this massive topic with prearranged marriages. Uh, but we're going to get into it. You're going to see uh, what this looks like over time. But I just want to get into Genesis 2, okay? So you look at it with me. If you do have a Bible, Genesis 2, I want you to see it with me. We're just going to walk through this and get into marriage. And, and my hope is is this morning is to show off the beauty and romance of marriage. That's my hope. So I don't know if your expectation is like, give me all the nuts and bolts, tell me all the things I should be doing, not be doing. Uh, We'll get into some specifics. We're definitely going to get more specific as we go because next week we'll get into husbands and the following week wives and following week sex. And so we're, we're going that direction. But we've got to start off with this foundation of what is marriage and how beautiful is it? Okay? Genesis 2, verse 15. The Lord God took the man and placed him in the Garden of Eden to work it and watch over it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For on the day you eat from it, you will certainly die. So so God creates Adam and places him in the Garden of Eden in a gorgeous place, ripe with potential, full of enjoyment, a place fit for his effort, fit for his royal status. He's a, he's a viceroy, Adam is. Created in the image of God, he resembles and reflects God to the world. And God's first command to his viceroy, to his royal subject, who's going to tend and work in this garden and, and uh, eventually cultivate it into this ongoing paradise of a Edenic kingdom spreading out throughout the earth to the glory of God. Like, this is what's happening. So it's beautiful here already. But I want you to see God's first command because so much of us reading the scriptures is trying to knock off those rough spots or the bad thinking we have about God. And so often we think he's harsh and stingy. His first command, generous. Generous. Well, he said, you are free to eat from any tree. Do you hear the bounty there? It's all for you. 
all of this that you can see. I've created this place for you to work it, to guard it. I'm giving it all to you. There's all this fruit. Enjoy it. That's how generous God is. And he says, but there's this one tree, one out of all of them, that you're not to eat. So I, Adam is a viceroy, but he's not God. He's to submit to God. God doesn't give him the warning of what will happen or what exactly means for evil and death to happen, but he's called to obey God's command as a matter of trust. I'm going to trust you, Lord. Even though I don't know exactly what this is going to look like, I don't know all the implications of if I disobey you, but I'm going to trust you because you're a generous father who knows me, loves me, and has created me. But with all this beauty that God observes, saying each day, good, 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 he points his finger at something. He observes something and says, this is not good. It's verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper corresponding to him. The Lord God formed out of the ground every wild animal and every bird of the sky and brought each to the man to see what Adam would call it. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the sky, to every wild animal. But for the man, no helper was found corresponding to him. This is a perfect garden. This is a perfect world. Therefore, it needs relationship. It needs community. Why? Because God is Trinitarian. Father, Son, and Spirit, who's always existed, this perfect community for all eternity. So then for God to make humans in his image, for, them to, for one of them to be isolated, alone, by themselves is not good because it doesn't resemble and reflect the nature of God. And so God's saying, this is not good. This is not good that he's alone, that he's isolated, that he's lacking community, that he's lacking a companion corresponding to him or fit for him. Verse 20 can be literally translated, but as for Adam, he did not find a helper fit for him. And we hear that, you can hear his, his experience of that isolation. He just waited through all these animals. I don't know if uh, he had a little chair, how this played out, but he's just sitting and all these animals are going in front of him and he's named them all. And at the end, there's no more animals and he's still alone. There's no helper fit for him. He feels his need for helper. Now, to be clear on helper, helper is not inferiority. Because God uses the same word about himself. In the Psalms, the psalmist so often says, God is my helper. That doesn't mean he's inferior to me as my subject, as my servant. No, he is the one that lifts my head. He's the one that loves me so much. He's going to come alongside me and help me to endure this pain. Help me endure this suffering. Help me to continue to press in and follow him no matter what's happening in my life. He's my helper. So this is not inferior. Also, this word does not mean dependence, for man and wife are interdependent. 
That's what it's saying. What it's saying is that God gave the woman as a gift, the gift of companionship, a relationship. She's fit for him, corresponding to him on his level. That's what this means. A helper who's on his level, eye to eye with him as his equal, as they both bear the image of God. Ray Ortland puts it this way. The man needed a companion like himself and yet unlike himself. As the friend and ally he could absolutely depend on. The woman completed the man and he knew it for he greeted her with relief. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh. Of my I'm just, all these animals, all these animals. All these, he's like, now this is it. Thank you, Lord. This is what I've been waiting for. Just with this great relief. And then it says, man's impact for God would be diminished would be diminished if he were to remain alone without the strong help of a strong woman. He needed her high-capacity contribution. Unified as head and helper, the man and the woman together can prosper as noble servants of their creator. So God, in response to his observation that it's not good for man to be alone, he moves, God the Father, moves in tender compassion to Adam to serve his royal son. I mean, you can imagine God speaking softly to Adam saying, hey, come lie here. Come rest. Come sleep. And I'm going to give you the gift that you couldn't even imagine. I'm going to give you the companion that you so long for. I'm going to give you the one who's fit for you, a person who can walk beside you. You can't even imagine what this is going to be like. And then Adam goes to sleep, and God does this. Verse 21. So Lord God caused a deep sleep to come over the man, and he slept. God took one of his ribs and closed the flesh at that place. Then the Lord God made the rib he had taken from the man into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, this one at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman for she was taken from man. In verse 24, this is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife and they become one flesh. Both the man and his wife were naked yet felt no shame. Some, some commentators talk about this uh, this creation as she's doubly refined, not created out of the dust of the earth like Adam, but out of Adam, and so she's doubly refined. But I, I love what Matthew Henry has said and has been quoted for 400 years. The woman was not made out of his head to roll over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon him, but out of the side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. God wakes up Adam and like the father of bride takes the woman and presents her to the man. And Adam is smitten. He rejoices over her, moved by love and awe. That's when he says, this is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she came out of man. Ray Orland goes on. I'm leaning into a little bit this morning. This is what he says. The man is not threatened by the woman's obvious equality with him. 
That heartwarming reality is the very thing that pleases him. With relief, at last, he greets her as his unique counterpart within the whole of creation. He intuitively identifies with her. His heart is drawn toward her. He prizes her. He rejoices over her. He praises God for her. And in thanking God for her, he perceives her as intimate with himself. So I'll talk to you specifically next week, husbands. But husbands, rejoice over your wife. Rejoice over your wife. This is God bringing this gift to you and say, here, this is the woman I had for you. This is the woman that I put for you. This is the one I'm giving you to you so that you have be one flesh. Rejoice over her. I know, I know it's hard. Like we don't, we don't understand that poetry, right? That doesn't sound romantic to it. At last, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. You're like, yeah, that sounds mad awkward, bro. But like, it's not. It's beautiful poetry. Beautiful ancient Jewish poetry that rejoices in his wife. And what I'm trying to say to you men is rejoice. Like honor your wife verbally with her words, with your words and encourage her and, and rejoice over her and not just her beauty, but her character and to see her and see what God has been doing in her and to see that this is the woman that God has given to me. She's my wife. He's presented her to me. I'm going to rejoice over her for the rest of my life. Like this is a good gift. This is my woman, my darling, my sweetie pie. What other names? Ed, you got one? My honey. This is who she is. There's got to be this adoration and affection for your wife because you were not given man's best friend. You were given a helper fit for you. You weren't given a dog that used to be wild and ate wild things and you domesticated it and shoved it into your house and put clothes on it. He didn't give you that to be your helper. He gave you your wife. So rejoice over her. Rejoice over her. And then Moses' point in this, one of his points is that he's going to leave his father and mother and bond with his wife and they become one flesh. And we get down to one flesh. We get down really to the biblical definition of marriage. It's this. One mortal life fully shared. That's what it is. That's what marriage is. It's not just this social contract that you make so that you get taxes taken off. You get better economical position. Or because two workers in one household is better than one worker in one household. You're not roommates living under the same roof. You, if you're married, have one mortal life fully shared. That's marriage. That's what's happened to you. That's what you've been given. To press it in further. Ray again. So in one flesh, union of marriage all the boundaries between a man and woman fall away and the married couple comes together completely as long they both shall live. In real terms, two selfish me start learning to think like one unified us, building a new life together with one total everything, one story, one purpose, one reputation, one bed, one suffering, one budget, one family, and so forth. Marriage removes all barriers and replaces them with a comprehensive oneness. 
It is this all-encompassing unity that sets marriage apart as marriage more profound than even the most intense friendship. And thinking about that last line, the man and woman are naked face-to-face in a relationship of complete belonging and total vulnerability. One mortal life fully shared. That's marriage. With the romance and the joy and the difficulties and the suffering, I think every wedding I've ever done, I've told them this, this is the most beautiful, the most difficult relationship in your life. But I don't want that difficult aspect for, for that <laughs> to blind you to the beauty of marriage as created, designed, and given by God. This, this, just to be clear, this isn't a social construct. Marriage didn't happen. We didn't create it to just make, we didn't learn it through evolutionary process to like just stick together and endure through all the weather. Given by the mind of the father who thought it up, which means this, you've got to begin to see the beauty of the marriage, beauty of marriage when you see the story of the Bible. The Bible begins with and ends with creation creation and new creation. And in those, the Bible begins with and ends with marriage. It began in Genesis 2 with the creation and the marriage of Adam and Eve, and then it ends in this new heaven and new earth coming down to this earth and encompassing it and making everything radiant and bright and glorious and beautiful. This is what Revelation 21 says. Then I saw a new heaven and new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne, look, God's dwelling is with humanity, and he will live with them. They will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. Then the one seated on the throne said, look, I am making everything new. Now, I, I don't know exactly where you live. I know we're always on this cusp, but like, you know, we send out people to Lido. Some of you guys live in barn dominiums out in uh, Tucumcari. I don't know. Uh, some of you guys live right here, you know. But what my experience is, is with the city is that the city can be a drag sometimes. It can just wear you down with all of its uh, uh, a noise and problems and gunshots and driving on 820 every day and seeing the, uh, the orange alert that I shouldn't be outside every day this summer. Like I shouldn't have gone outside every day this summer because every day on that sign is like, unhealthy, don't go outside. I'm like, I'm dry. I'm here. I don't, it's too late. It's too late. I've made my decision. I'm not going back home. Okay? But the new city will not wear us down with the noise and the pollution and the corruption and the brokenness. It's a city of romance. And if you don't like that word, I don't care. I'm going to keep using that word because this is romantic. This is beautiful. The city is going to come down like a bride 
adorned. And in that language, there's this intimacy and warmth and joy and bliss. I mean, think about it. This will be our forever experience. Isaiah 62.5 puts it this way, prophesies it this way. As a groom rejoices over his bride, so your God will rejoice over you. That's your forever experience. That's you with the Father, Son, and Spirit forever. That's where you're heading. That's your trajectory. This cosmic marriage that you've been pulled into, wooed into, pursued into, and won is going to win out and be the theme of eternity. The grand story of the Bible is the father gathering a bride for his son. Ephesians 5, which you think you probably thought, that's where I'm going to go, or maybe I'm going to go there next week. He's like, Why? People, we're going to talk, it's a lot. It's probably the most uh, uh, content about marriage in one particular spot in the Bible. And I'll tell you this in Ephesians 5. Talking about marriage, it actually says that Jesus and the church is the reality and we are but the metaphors. That Jesus' church doesn't, it's not a metaphor for our marriage. Our marriage is a metaphor for the deepest reality, and that's Jesus wooing, pursuing, and winning a bride for himself who he's going to cherish, nourish, and love for all time. That's the grand story of the Bible. Now, let me come back to prearranged marriages, okay? Told you I was going to. God prearranged Adam and Eve, right? Brought them together, made them one flesh, where truth and love can flourish in this marriage covenant. But they're strange to us, these prearranged marriages. But they're the norm in ancient times. Our, our how you, well, <laughs> I don't know how some of you met your wife. I was going to say some of you guys, this dating aspect just got started in the 12th or 13th century. So I was going to say, so it's relatively, and others of you have like met online. I'm like, I don't know when that started. So I don't you know, three years ago, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> but for us, it's very strange to think about, well, what, my, my parents, what, what, if, what if that happened? Can you think about it? I mean, just think with your Western mentality, think about entrusting your parents. I know some of your parents. And trust your parents to choose a spouse for you and then be like, okay, you, I, all right. Thanks, mom. Thanks, dad. I trust you. I'm sure you got my best interest in heart. But the beauty is these prearranged marriages didn't stifle real love for the people of God. It actually gave them the opportunity for the truest love of all, a, a love seated in choice, rooted in commitment, unconditional love. It's it was loving someone just because he or she was yours. She's mine. I'm going to love her. He's mine. I'm going to love her. I'm in this. I'm going to commit to this person. I'm going to choose this person. I'm going to covenant to this person. They weren't stifled by this at all. Actually, if you go to the Song of Songs, the greatest hit of Solomon, the best top-tracking album that he ever produced was eight explicit songs on one LP 
That's all about lovemaking, okay? I've I've been trying to think for weeks, how am I going to say some of these things with all the kids in our room? And these are the words I'm going to go to, you know? We just all use the, the intimacy language, right? Intimate. Have you known your wife biblically? Like we can do all those jokes, right? I'm going to be careful about our kids. I'm going to be careful, but we have to really get into this stuff. In Song of Solomon, they knew about a love that burns like blazing fire, like a mighty flame. Many waters cannot quench love. Rivers can't wash it away. I I tell you all this to tell you, when, when you are called the bride of Christ, let's stop thinking about marriage in the American way and thinking about it as the biblical way, the biblical times, meaning this. It's not that big of a deal. It's kind of weird if you think about, I'm the bride of Christ, and we dated, and we got to this point, and I chose him, and we're good. It's just not that. That's not what's happened. That's not what's happened. What happened is that God the Father had an unmarried son. And when the time was right, he stepped into his responsibility, didn't shirk it, leaned forward, and found a bride for his son. So much, just like ancient times, just about Abraham and the matchmaker said, go find a a bride for my son. God the Father sends out the matchmaker, if I can press this analogy a little bit, uh, sends the matchmaker, the Holy Spirit, to gather you, to bring you, to woo you to the Son. And the Father's saying, yes. And he's just sitting there waiting for, this is my Son who I sent for you, to you, to love you, to transform you, to wedge you, to commit to you, and to treasure you forever. Will you say yes to this Son? Will you say yes to my Son? Will you give your life? Will you commit to him? And if you do, if you, if you uh, have been born again, if you've been changed by Jesus, you put your faith in Jesus, he has pulled you to himself and he's treasured you and cherished you and nourished you and he always will. This is the grand story of romance throughout the Bible, which means If this is how romantic and affectionate and lovely and beautiful the relationship between Jesus and his church is, then what would marriage look like as Christians? Wonderfully affectionate, terrifically loving, overflowing with mercy and compassion to move towards the other person because God in his infinite wisdom has created this gift and then given me this gift in marriage. Praise him. Hallelujah. Before creation and eternity past, the father pointed past all the galaxies and to his son said, look at earth. There's your bride. Go get her. And Jesus said, I'll do it. That's the good news of the gospel. Then in all of our no's and our rebellion, just like our first parents, Adam and Eve, the son doesn't disobey, doesn't say no to the father, but says, yes, I'll do it. I'll go win her. I'll go pay the price for her, for her, uh, her, for her wedding price. Where's that price paid? At the cross that Jesus died to pay the wedding price for you, to pull you into his family and to commit to you forever. This is the grand story of romance. So human marriage, our marriages exist to show off the glory 
of Jesus. Our marriages are the beautiful metaphors that point to the deepest reality of Jesus loving his church, his bride, and giving himself, laying down his life, literally, for her. Not all the lovey-dovey promises without real sacrificial action, all the promises and affection and honoring you with words and encouragement, but also coming through when you're in a pinch and you need to be rescued, that's your husband. That's Jesus. He stepped out of heaven to love an adulteress, a grimy bride that he makes lovely because of his love for us. And so, I want so badly for you, for all of us, to be refreshed with this beauty of marriage and that we would honor it. And so I'm going to tell you a few things that I've told people throughout the years. I'm going to walk through a few things that I tell people regularly. So we're moving a little bit out of uh, the pulpit space into just my office. So just think, if I'm sitting down with you and I'm talking with you, talking with you in my office, here's some things that I've told people for years, and I just want to tell all of us, and then we'll get more specifically as we go throughout this series into husbands, wives, and, and so forth. But here's some temptations in marriage, okay? If that's the beauty of marriage, is that what, beauty, what marriage points to? Here's some temptations. Number one, compare your marriage to others. Say things like grass is always greener, but it always leads you to discontentment with your life and your marriage. How about stop talking about the grass over there and start watering your own grass? How about that? You, you can't get far from the creation account of marriage and not think about husbands. You're to tend your wife like a garden. That if there's massive rocks in her garden, if it's overgrown, if it's messy and it's not producing fruit, are you going to help? Are you going to come in and help and serve and move towards? Uh, comparing yourself to others also gets you to feel like you deserve better, right? We start getting like, man, I deserve a different husband. I could, I could upgrade. We upgraded our cars two years ago. I could, I could upgrade my, my, my spouse in a couple of years. Compare your marriage to others. Two, worship your spouse. spouse. That's idolatry. But man, we are so good at, at what we said last or two weeks ago about creating idols that we then even turn our spouses into the object of our adoration and worship in a God sense, not in a uh, husband and wife, but in a God sense, like we look to them as our functional saviors. They're not. And I'll tell you, if you keep idolizing them and they let you down again, you're probably going to end up demonizing them because that's what we do. Three, religion. Work really hard together to earn God's approval. Where we focus on our performance or our marriage's performance and we're doing this all to like earn God's favor. That 
wrong flow, that swimming against the flow of the gospel, of course, is going to have destructive impacts on your marriage. For self-protection, that's, that's the opposite of being Adam and Eve. Naked and ashamed, face-to-face, enjoying this wonderful relationship. No, I'm actually going to hide myself from my spouse. I'm going to protect myself from myself. I can't get exposed by them, or I can't be exposed to them. I can't really let them know these things. I'm going to keep hiding. And so we create like this secret garden of sin in our lives and hide it. And, and when you create that secret garden, it, it grows like weeds. And it keeps going and festering and getting worse and worse. Or pride. Uh, (laughs) You know, those times where you think, like, our marriage is doing great, and it just turns into our marriage is better than others. We're really doing this well. We start taking the pride for how well our marriage is doing. Or we start blaming others. That's also a sign of pride. So I'm like, oh, it's their fault. It's their fault where our marriage isn't doing well. It's your fault that our marriage isn't doing well. It's those people's fault. Number six, ignore or cover up present and past pain. In that garden, we have the first picture of the gospel is in their pain and hiding and shame. God comes to them, seeks them out, and then kills an animal to clothe them. So God doesn't ignore the consequences, the pain, the brokenness in them. He actually comes to them and serves them and clothes them and dignifies them and graces them. There are some temptations. Here are some tools. Here are some tools. Worship God together. Like together. I know it's difficult sometimes on Sundays with multiple people serving and kids, but as much as you can be together in corporate worship, actually worship Jesus side by side. Pray for one another. Pray with and over one another. Worship Jesus at your home. Together. We, we can talk about family worship all the time. And you leading your family, your kids, to, to sing at home and to pray at home. What if you don't have kids? What if you do have kids? Do this with your spouse first. Otherwise, we lead into such a kid-centered home that we don't even worship with our spouse. We just tell our kids about Jesus and actually don't worship Jesus as a marriage, as a couple. Ask each other questions about God. I try to tell, tell you guys, like, let's not rush out of here on Sundays. Let's stay and minister to one another. But let's also ask questions. What challenged you? What convicted you uh, throughout the sermon? What, what was God using? This? Do this with your spouse. Talk about these things. Wrestle through these questions with them. Ask your spouse, what is God showing you? What's he teaching you? Number two, enjoy romance and companionship. That's what I was trying to get at this morning. Enjoy this gift of marriage. This is a blessing. Be friends. Be companions. You're, you're fit 
corresponding to another. You've been given this by God. Be friends, enjoy those things together, laugh together, tell stories, cultivate that friendship, that humility and openness, and that listening and talking and hearing what actually is going on with your spouse. Sit with them, hear them. Number three, repent of sin together. Instead of siding with yourself, side against yourself, side with God, repent of your sin, confess it to the Lord and to one another, and let's put it to death. But marriage sans repentance is, is missing intimacy so much. I, I, I think sex is wonderfully intimate, but I, I've said this multiple times. I don't know if there's anything more intimate than looking into my wife's eyes, telling her my sins down to like the idolatry and the disbelief in my heart and her saying, yes, I agree with you. You did sin against me in this way and against God this way, yet I forgive you. And when she says that to my face, in my eyes, and I can see that she's genuine and I feel her love for me, that's intimacy. That's joy. Confess those things together. Don't hide. Don't self-protect. Don't keep pushing it down. Don't suppress it. Actually walk in the light with one another. Four, look for evidences of grace in each other. This goes back to Romans 12, but us honoring one another, right? We try to create a culture of honoring here. Do that in your relationship, in your marriage. Uh, write things down. Tell the story of what the Lord has done in your spouse's life, write it down. Have those Ebenezer stones, those things that you, you talk about, you write down, you remember, and say, yes, this is what the Lord did to us in 2015. Where you can actually look back at your history and brag on Jesus. Why? Because you've kept track of how good he's been to you throughout your marriage. Not, oh, we've been married for 16 years. Okay, what has the Lord done in that? Where has he been there? He's been there the whole way, doing a million different ways, million different things to continue to sanctify you and grow you and to conform you more and more into his image. Uh, this, this also means don't despise small beginnings. The prophets say that. It'd be Zephaniah or Zechariah. I'm sorry. But do not despise small beginnings. Sometimes we get to the point where we see all of our spouse's sin and we're so focused on their sin and we don't look at ours that we're just looking at that, seeing that, focused on that, that we are unaware, ignorant of what God is doing in our spouse. And, and seeing all of it, sometimes we feel like, man, they got to grow so much. No one else? Okay. Sorry, babe. My wife tells me all the time I need to grow so much. No one else. Okay. Uh, but when you see that, you see there's so much growth, then you can like speed it up. Get better. What's wrong with you? Right? I don't know if you say those things to your spouse. You've got at least, you've thought in those things. I know you have. Like stop doing the same thing over and over. Fix this. Get into those things. No, no, let's, let's celebrate the work that God is doing in them, those little moments of obedience, 
those moments where there's a different pattern and they're responding differently than they did in the past. Celebrate it. Rejoice. Number five, talk about painful things, please. You both suffer. Realize you both suffer and realize that Christ understands and suffered in your place. But talk about those painful things, those hurtful things, the things from your past, from your childhood, from your relationships. Talk about it. Six, be aware when you're polishing each other's idols. I talked about this with a couple recently of uh, one was loved power, one loved uh, approval, and they just, how that relationship worked out is that just their idols work together. And this person was more dominant and powerful, and this person was just saying yes all the time, and they're just pushing on each other in a bad way, but for them, it just kind of worked out. And they were ambivalent, not ambivalent, they were just kind of unaware of it, not knowing, how did that, how does that work out, how does that play out? Well, sometimes just because you never fight doesn't mean you have a healthy relationship. It's because both of your idols are coming to complement one another, to work hand in hand together. And so we're going to polish this. We're going to talk about where our sins intersect. We're going to offer grace and humility to each other. We're going to, in the midst of conflict, receive God's grace and then extend it to the other one. Do, Do you... Do you guys know that conflict in marriage? That conflict where it's like this person sins, then I sin in response, and they sin in response, then I sin in response, and they sin in response, and it's Thursday, and we started this on Monday. How'd we get here? Those escalating conflicts are stepped out of by one person stepping to the Lord, receiving his grace for their sin needing mercy for their weakness, and then them turning and responding and extending that grace to their spouse. So be aware when you're polishing each other's idols. And lastly, fight well. Can we fight well? You're going to fight. I couldn't get into all this, but you're both sinners in this marriage. So you're going to fight you're going to sin against one another. And so can you fight? Well, meaning uh, boxing is best done when there's rules beforehand. Meaning it's clean and it, it's going well when it's in a ring and there's a ref and we all know the rules. Boxing at a Burger King at midnight on a Friday gets wild, Right? And some of y'all's marriages are like Burger King at midnight instead of, meaning wild punches, every, uh, every punch is the big overhand swing, like you're coming at it, right? People's eyelashes are being pulled out, like it, it's, it's going off. What I'm trying to tell you is this, create rules before you fight. Because when you start fighting, you won't create rules. You'll just go at it. In our premarital, Kayla and I have talked for years with people about this, about, hey, uh, create some rules. And we just give them a few to try to prime the pump. And I tell them, don't use universal statements. When you're fighting, those things do not serve anyone. You always do this. You've never been here for this. Like, oh, is that true? No, it's not. I'm just trying to press into you and provoke you 
or win the point. That's what I'm trying to do. Or be quiet. That's my rule. That's Caitlin's rule for me. When we're fighting conflict, particularly in the car, uh, I want to keep fighting. I want to keep going. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to win this argument. And uh, our rule is stop talking, Ryan. And when I stop talking and I pray for like three seconds or just quiet for three seconds, I'm immediately convicted. Like, oh, but when I don't stop talking, I can keep going. Anyone else? Yeah. It's like, why am I still, what am I doing? I know what I've done up to this point. Why am I still going? I'll take a break. I'll come back and I think I'm calm and I can re-enter into this conversation. And I do. And then five minutes in, I'm back where I was. I'm like, why did I, why did I do this again? Why am I here? You need rules before you fight. So be quiet. <laughs> Maybe you need just to stop talking, get away for a, a moment. Say, hey, we're going to leave for five minutes. We're going to come back. That's good because one person usually is like, I never want to separate. We're going to figure this out now. And the other person's like, I need 30 hours to process this. How's that? Is that a good deal? Does that work? You want to figure it out now. I want next Thursday. That's what I want. Put on the schedule. We'll figure it out then. Hopefully, you'll forget about it and we won't have to talk about it. <laughs> yeah, I know some of you guys. <laughs> but hey, we're going to separate for a minute to calm down, but we're going to have a time limit so we know that we're actually going to come back together and work through this. Uh, no name calling. That's one of our rules. But we have these rules that we created, we agreed upon together beforehand, so then when we get into it, we know, okay, this is going to put us in a position to fight more fairly. It's not what we're going to hope in, we're going to hope in Jesus, but we're going to have these things that they're going to help us fight more fairly. So, with, with these, like, practical things, I just want to come back to God gave the gift of marriage to you. If you're married, it's a gift. And it's a gift that, that isn't just received. It's also to be stewarded. And stewarded in a way that it shows off the glory of Jesus and his bride. That's what your marriage is for. For your sanctification, yes. For your joy, yes. For partnership, companionship in the midst of life suffering, yes. But bigger than all that, that it would show off Jesus' love, wooing, pursuing, commitment to his bride. And so let's receive this gift and display the gospel with our marriage. Meaning, men, can I just summarize this by this? Men, love your wives like Jesus loves the church. And wives, respect your husbands as the church, like the church respects Jesus. Your romance was created to show off the cosmic romance of Jesus and his bride. The son leaving heaven to come to earth to woo and pursue and pay the costly price for his bride on the cross. Let's pray. Father, we ask in your son's name that you would work 
in our marriages and grow them and strengthen them that they might show off clearly, pristinely, and gloriously your relationship, your marriage, your commitment to your bride, to us, the church. So Lord, we, we pray that you would do this in us, that you would lead us away from temptation, these temptations that we talked about, lead us away from temptation and, and lead us into the path where your kingdom and your will would be done in our marriages as it is in heaven. That our marriages would be overflowing, abounding with affection and love and encouragement and grace and mercy. Because that's what we've received from you, Jesus. That's what you've given to us. And that's the whole family that you've pulled us into. And so, Lord, that's what we ask. And we ask boldly and confidently because we know that this is what you want to do in us. You want to sanctify us. You want to conform us more into the image of Jesus. And, and you want our marriages to show off that glory, that beauty. So in Christ's name, we pray. Amen.